Hello everybody and welcome to the September edition of our Natural Wine Club. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Eric Mercier. I'm co-owner of Juice Imports and uh, I'm going to walk you through our selection for this month. We've got a really amazing lineup. Uh, I know I say that every month, but it, it just seems like every month I get more and more excited about the wines that we're able to cram into this club. Uh, sometimes it means using our entire allocation for the year, uh, which we're more than happy to do. And a great example of that is uh, is our first wine, starting off with a, a serious bang here. Um, Pinard et Fille Frangin is the name of this particular wine. Um, so this is coming from Quebec. Um, first wine we've ever included in the club from Quebec. I believe we might be the first people to bring in, at the very least, natural wine from Quebec into Alberta. Um, we have been talking to Fred. Uh, Frederic is the uh, is the owner of the uh, this project. He has a vineyard, um, but he also works with uh, a handful of other vineyard owners as well who are farming in ways that. Uh, you know, sort of our, align with our ideology, organics, not using synthetic pesticides and herbicides, um, and, you know, farming for the transmission of terroir more than for uh, mass production. Um, anyways, we, we've been talking with Red for literally years trying to get his wines. Um, the first time I had them, it was because of uh, an old friend of ours, Emily Campo, uh, who is in, uh, well, I guess now she's in Germany. She was in Austria for a period of time, but originally uh, was in Montreal running some uh, really amazing restaurants there. Um, Candide uh, is definitely worth going to if you get a, an opportunity to be in Montreal in the near future here. Um, their wine list is consistently amazing. She still sort of helps out and recommends things. Um, and it's absolutely spectacular. So th that was the first time that I got to taste these wines was uh, via her generosity. And I was completely astonished at how good they were. Um, then on every trip back to Quebec, uh, I would try and grab a bottle. Um, they're few and far between. Uh, but, you know, we made it happen every a, a couple times. And then um, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, but I, I think it was over three years ago. Uh, I reached out, asked if he'd be willing to sell us some wine. He admittedly said no uh, right off the bat, but we agreed to have a phone call anyways to chat. And um, I remember getting the phone call as I was walking home. Uh, you know, I told him to phone me any time in the afternoon. And, and you know, th that second that you step out of the house is always when the phone call actually comes. So um, me being so excited just for the opportunity to, to chat with him, um, I answered the phone while I was walking through this park. And, uh, and we ended up chatting for, you know, m more than an hour. Um, which was fantastic. I had a million questions to ask about, you know, what's farming like in, in Quebec and um, some of the things that we, we learned were that uh, over the course of the winter, because it gets so cold in order to prevent your vines from dying, you essentially have to bury them. Uh, you can use this stuff called, I believe it's called geotex, which is um, sort of like an insulating material that you lay out over top of your entire vineyard in order to keep it you know, warm essentially, um, but you're also burying it with with things like hay to help again insulate these vines from the freezing cold. Uh, even the the you know sort of most hardy vines will still experience some winter kill when you're getting to those 
you know deep numbers especially over minus 20. Um, there are certain grape varieties that are now certified down to minus 39. Uh, Le Cresson being sort of the standout of those grape varieties uh, which he has planted uh, or at least his neighbors have planted but as far as the classical vitis vinifera varieties so the european grape varieties that we're all you know sort of familiar with uh, those really don't like surviving down below you know we're talking minus 10 in most cases for most grape varieties although some of the ones that he has planted can definitely survive down you know, minus 15, uh, and so when it gets down to minus 30 there, you're going to need that extra insulation to uh, to help the vine. Uh, not only that, but to prevent the grapes, or I guess not the grapes, sorry, but the, the plants from waking up too early in the season. Um, that's a, a huge challenge that they have. Uh, you know, we always get that warm day in in February, March, April, you know, a couple days here and there. And basically when the vine senses those warm temperatures, it's like, cool, it's time for me to come out of dormancy. Um, and if it comes out of dormancy and then there's a cold snap, that's when you have serious problems. Once the vine moves all its sap into the actual um, parts that are above ground, and then it gets that cold, uh, that sap will freeze and it'll cause the you know, either the trunk to split or uh, mess up the canes. Uh, and especially if you're getting, you know, them pushing leaves, um, you know, pushing shoots, things like that, any green matter is going to be seriously affected by those cold temperatures. So they're trying to delay these vines from, from waking up as long as they can. Um, but also the season is incredibly short. You know, obviously the weather's uh, maybe a little bit more... Uh, I don't know, even there than it is here. You know, they actually have real fall, uh, unlike us who, I, I, you know, outdoors feels like it's, uh, you know, we're going to have a week of, of fall and then it's going to dive straight into winter. Uh, it's a little more gradual there, but still the growing season is super short. So finding great varieties that can ripen in such a short period of time is always a huge challenge. We do have the benefit of being quite far north. Um, which means that over the course of the summer, the daylight hours are a lot higher than they would be in vineyards further south. So this sort of makes up for um, some of those differences. So in this case, we have grape varieties that nobody's ever heard of before, and that's totally fine. Um, and these are hybrid grape varieties. So we have Frontenac Noir, Marquette, and uh, Petit Pearl. Um, so these grape varieties are essentially crossings of uh, grape varieties from Europe with grape varieties from sort of all over the world in all honesty, but mostly, uh, mostly nor North American grape varieties um, through, again, a million and, you know, a million tests in labs. They've been able to breed a handful of grape varieties that can survive uh, our particular climate. A lot of them were developed at the, the Cool Climate Grape Institute. Um, you know, you look at places like the northern states where they have a fairly similar climate to what we have and, uh, you know, they need to they need to be able to make wine as well. So they've come up with some pretty ingenious grape varieties through uh, crossbreeding over and over again and then and then methodical testing in the actual vineyard as well. Uh, so it's really cool to see these new flavors. They're, they're completely different than the flavors you'd get out of um, wines made from vinifera grape varieties. And for a long time, this put people off of them. They felt that only 
great varieties from Europe could express terroir, so that sense of place. But now that you know we're becoming maybe a little less jaded and a little less closed-minded in the wine industry, people are looking to these hybrids as being um, you know potentially the way forward, the way for more areas in the world to be able to grow grapes. Uh, and you see hybrid uh, hybrids being developed for other things as well, whether that be drought resistance, heat tolerance, um, all these different things that are, are becoming a major problem as we look at climate change. So we might end up seeing a lot more hybrids on the market over the course of the next coming years. Um, and especially with natural winemakers, the winemakers that we're working with that are trying to do, um, you know, minimal spraying in the vineyard, minimal um, fertilizing, things like that, uh, if you can develop grape varieties that don't really need the same sort of inputs, that's the ultimate way of limiting, uh, you know, the amount of pesticides and herbicides that you're going to be using um, is by having the vines have a natural resistance to those things. So it's really exciting to see the direction that they're going. Um, as far as winemaking goes here, we have what we call semi-carbonic maceration. So that means that um, the, they're whole berries that are fermenting from the inside out. Uh, we had an amazing write-up on our Instagram about what carbonic maceration is. Uh, we'll try and include a link to that. It's a, it's a lot of geeky information, but if you like talking about biology and chemistry, it's definitely worth reading through. But essentially what it does is enhances the fruit characteristics of these grape varieties, um, softens the tannins, uh, helps lower the acidity. Uh, with most of our winemakers, their goal is to attain as much acidity uh, as possible throughout the growing season. But in cool climates like Quebec uh, and with grape varieties that tend to retain their acidity really nicely, uh, you're less worried about, uh, about retaining acidity. So doing something like carbonic maceration is going to soften that wine. It's going to make it seem more drinkable, more bright, fresh. That being said, this is definitely on the tart side of the spectrum. Really refreshing, really zingy, really electric. Um, from a flavor perspective here, uh, I think you, you'll all have a ton of fun writing your own tasting notes on this. Um, it's sort of uh, definitely on the wild side. Uh, lots of blackberries and floral characteristics, some earthy characteristics in there as well. Um, stoniness. Uh, it's really sort of all over the map, but in this really sort of gregarious, playful sort of way. Um, if you go to Quebec, chances are at a lot of the best restaurants, you'll see at least one of his cuvées on the menu. Uh, he sells exclusively to restaurants in Quebec. So as a consumer, you actually um, can't buy the wines for, for you know, drinking at home. His whole idea is that these are meant to be consumed with food. They're meant to be shared with friends. Um, unfortunately, because we don't have uh, sort of a developed um you know, natural wine culture from a restaurant perspective in Alberta, uh, ours are almost going exclusively into retail shops because, um, yeah, our, our uh, yeah our, our restaurant scene just has not quite caught up with uh, the way that Montreal is uh, uh, <laughs> doing their wine programs. So hopefully at one point you'll be able to drink these in a restaurant. Uh, shout out to Smoky Bear for having these on the list. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody else who has them on the list, but uh, off the top of my head, that's the only place I can think of that has uh, has Pinard de Fee. Uh, on their actual wine list in Alberta, which is fantastic. But again, the ideology here is that this should be shared with people. Um, I look to 
the restaurants in Montreal for inspiration on on what this should be paired with. Um, in particular, L'Express, which is I, I'm sure I've mentioned it on this uh, this podcast before, but uh, old school sort of like French bistro style. Um, lots of really great uh, offal dishes. Uh, so organ meat, I think it goes really well with this wine. That combination of dark fruit flavors um, with the high acidity and, and freshness. Again, I think it cuts through a lot of that fat, which is tremendous. Uh, we were essentially only able to get enough of this wine for the wine club, plus a couple extra cases for here and there. Um, we set it aside a couple months ago, but weren't able to fit it into the club club economically until now. It's really hard hitting that you know hundred dollar um, budget every month. Uh, you know, often we're like, uh, can't we just squeak in this super expensive bottle? Um, and then this month we were we were finally able to find uh, two wines that were a little bit less expensive to sort of counteract it. I still think we probably went over the budget <laughs> as we do every month, um, but either way, you'll sort of get to reap the benefits. Um, again, I think this is a pop and pour wine. I think uh, you know, drink it over the course of uh, a couple hours in the evening. I wouldn't hang on to this for too many days. I think it tastes best fresh. Uh, some of their other cuvées really develop over the course of a couple days, but I think the style of this wine is definitely more geared towards, uh, you know, easy drinking, bright and fresh, um, wildly complex, uh, wildly compelling, but definitely for uh, for young drinking as opposed to aging or sitting on for, uh, you know, a day or two. The next wine that we're going to talk about is Ryan Sturm's Calcite, uh, which is um, his new uh, white cuvee. We've included Ryan Sturm's wines in the past, but it's been a long time since we've received a big enough allocation to actually include them in the wine club. And luckily this year he came out with a brand new cuvee, uh, an entry level white wine that's a blend of a bunch of different grapes, but from some spectacular vineyards. Uh, and so we're absolutely thrilled to be able to share it with you. So this is coming from California, but from vineyards in three very diverse locations. Um, the main component of this comes from uh, the Wurz Vineyard, uh, which is in the um, Cienega Valley, uh, or Cienega Valley, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, I feel like in California, everything is just pronounced uh, phonetically, regardless of what the uh, <laughs> of what the origins of the word are. Uh, so, so we'll go with the Cienega Valley. Um, this is some of the oldest Riesling vines uh, remaining alive in California. Um, you have vines that were planted in, I believe, the 50s, uh, so getting quite old, but this is kind of the antithesis of where you would expect to find Riesling. Super hot site in central California. Um, it's a really wild variety of different soils. Um, most of the vines here are head trained, meaning that they're they're bush vines as opposed to trained up on trellises the way that we would see in you know the Okanagan, for example. This is really rare to see um, for Riesling. I, I've never seen anybody else do head trained Riesling before or Riesling bush vines. Uh, so it's really cool to, to see that here. Um, the second component that we have uh, is uh, from Santa Cruz, and this is Chardonnay. Chardonnay and Riesling do not normally go into the same wine. Uh, Riesling being hyper aromatic, Chardonnay being quite neutral. When you put them together, the Chardonnay kind of fades away. But in this case, it's a really nice sort of tempering agent. Chard uh, Riesling, again, being quite exuberant, uh, if you're trying to make a more delicate 
delicate, um, you know, sort of subtle wine, Chardonnay can actually be a really nice sort of balancing feature, add some, you know, nice body depending on where you're getting it from. Again, in this case, we're, we're going to the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, so essentially just south of uh, San Francisco. Really, really cool spot to be growing grapes. Some famous vineyards in this area. You think of Ridge Montebello when you think of Santa Cruz Mountains. So these are premium, premium sites. And the fact that there's a little bit of Chardonnay sneaking into this blend from there uh, really speaks to the, the quality that we see here. The last grape variety is one of my favorite grape varieties on the planet. It's called Shoyreba. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of Shoyreba before, there's a really uh, great book that highlights um, Riesling as a as sort of being the best grape on earth. Uh, again, we'll try and include a link to that somewhere at some point. Um, but one of the special mentions in the book is Shoyreba and how Shoyreba is basically sort of like a very playful uh, flamboyant version of, of Riesling, which is, uh, again, you can imagine how much fun that is. It tends to be, again, quite aromatic, um, but even fruitier than Riesling, maybe a little less serious, but that's sort of one of the things that I like about it. Um, and this is coming from uh, C5, C5 Vineyard, um, which is in Santa Inez, um, which is in Southern California. Um, it's really interesting because despite the fact that this valley is so far south, it's actually one of the coolest places to grow grapes in California. The reason for that is that it's, um, I believe, located in the only sort of transverse range, meaning that the um, normally on the coast you have uh, mountain ranges that go north-south, uh, but in this case it goes east-west, which allows a lot of those uh, sort of cool oceanic breezes to make it further inland into this valley um, and helping cool things cool things down. So you're able to grow grapes like Shoyreba, which are normally quite cool climate grapes, um, but, uh, you know, in a different place. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Ryan Sturm, he's one of our favorite winemakers of all time. Uh, he's come up to Calgary. He's come up to Edmonton. Uh, we've gone up to the mountains with him as well. Um, he's just such a charming guy, super thoughtful. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what else to say about him. He's just one of my uh, one of my favorite people. Um, you know, a true friend when we uh, when we think of the people that we get to work with. So we're very excited for this new release. We also got a little bit of Zinfandel from him. We got a little bit of Pinot Noir from him. So if you uh, really like this wine and you want to experience some of his other projects, definitely seek those out because they're uh, you know outrageously good. As far as winemaking goes here, he. Um, has this really great methodology that I think really, I guess, makes him a standout in California for, for the way that he's making these wines. Um, he learned this technique in Austria, I believe. And uh, essentially what you're doing is you're doing um, whole cluster maceration, which means that you're crushing the white grapes and letting the juice sit with the skins um, for about a day before you're pressing it off. And this gets a little bit of the flavor out of the skin, some extra intensity, but doesn't make it quite as um, sort of earthy as you'd expect from, from orange wine, uh, where you do the full fermentation with the skins. 
After this, uh, he lets the juice settle. So he lets a lot of the sort of floaty bits that end up in the, uh, in the juice after pressing settle to the bottom of the tank. He then racks that. So he takes all the, the clear liquid from the top uh, and that's when he starts fermentation. In this case, fermentation is happening in barrel. Um, these barrels are neutrals. We're not fermenting in, in new oak here. So you won't get any oak influence necessarily. Um, and then it goes through um, you know, sort of a, a short elevage time, meaning that it just hangs out in those barrels, chills, uh, he racks it again. So any of the remaining floaty bits, uh, you know, he leaves those in the, in the barrel, uh, and takes just the, you know, just the clear stuff. And then, uh, he bottles it super simple. Um, but I think it's a ingenious methodology for making wine. I think that his wines taste super clean. They're super stable. I find that most of his wines I can keep open for, you know, a handful of days at the very least. Um, you know, with some of his Rieslings, they taste really great over the course of three, four days, which is quite astonishing, especially for wines with such low levels of, of sulfur dioxide added. Um, the other thing he does is he picks when the grapes have a really great pH level. So in this case, 3.29 pH, which is not hyper acidic, but definitely on the fresh side of the spectrum. Uh, once you start creeping up to 3.5, that's when your whites are going to taste a little bit softer. So the fact that he's harvesting, you know, with a little bit more acidity really makes these wines shine through. Um, production is quite small, you know, somewhere around 350 cases, maybe a little bit less than that. Uh, so we're really lucky to have gotten, you know, such a big allocation. Price points, astonishingly good. Uh, you know, we're talking about like 28 bucks here in Calgary, um, you know, across the province. Usually things are maybe a buck cheaper in, uh, in Lethbridge. So for our, our, the people in the Lethbridge Wine Club, uh, you know, you might, you might see it for a deal. Um, <laughs> but either way, we think it's absolutely astonishingly good uh, good value. And, you know, even though it's inexpensive, I definitely would hang on to a couple of these bottles for a couple of years and, and see how they evolve over that time. Uh, I could definitely use a glass of it right now. I'm feeling extra thirsty today. I, I feel for some weird reason. So next up, uh, for our final wine, jumping back into red wine, uh, we have Selene. This is made by our friend Silver Tricard, uh, who's located in Beaujolais. Beaujolais, uh, again, we've mentioned it a million times over, but one of our fam uh, favorite regions of all time. Any opportunity that we can cram, you know, some Beaujolais into the wine club, we try to. Uh, <laughs> it seems like a lot of people in the wine club always shout out Beaujolais as being their favorite wine. So, you know, who are we to disagree with, with the masses? Um, you obviously have uh, great palates, and so we're going to continue, you know, trusting you. <laughs> uh, so Beaujolais is located in France. It's sort of right beneath the um, what we call the Cote d'Or uh, in Burgundy. So sort of the more famous area of, of Burgundy. If you drive south through um, the Maconnais and the Cote Chalonnais, you'll end up in Beaujolais. It's legally speaking part of Burgundy, although uh, they don't grow the same red grape variety as the rest of Burgundy. Um, and the whole area is different. The soil types are different. Uh, in this area, we're talking about things like granite. Uh, so you're, you're talking about pink granite and black granite, a um, bunch of different colors of granite that seem to add different flavors. You're talking about sand. Uh, and so versus in the Cote d'Or, you know, you're really talking limestone, marl, uh, things like that. And, and so 
it really couldn't be more different. The vibe down here is also different. Uh, the vibe in, in Burgundy proper is very regal. Um, you know, it's, it's still run by farmers, but there's definitely this uh, aristocratic sort of feel over top of everything. The fact that the wines often sell for $1,000 a bottle is definitely helping that. Um, versus in Beaujolais, you can get extraordinary value. You know, the top wines in Beaujolais are selling for maybe around $100 now, which is, you know, it's it's not inexpensive. Um, but you can get spectacular bottles for like $30, $40 versus in, in, again, Burgundy proper, it would be very rare to find something at Thirty, forty dollars. That's that's really compelling, um, and this is a great example of a wine that's extraordinarily compelling, joyous, and and fun uh, for you know thirty bucks. Um, this is made from Gamay Noir. Uh, all red Beaujolais is made from Gamay Noir. Gamay Noir uh, is sort of, you know, often referred to as a cousin of Pinot Noir in the sense that it's bright and fresh in the same way, but the flavor profile is quite different. Um, Gamay Noir has rotundin, which is a uh, flavor molecule responsible for making black pepper taste like black pepper. So there's often sort of a peppery quality to it. It also has way darker fruit characteristics. So for me, it's often, uh, you know, black cherry uh, is sort of the standout aroma. Uh, when you add to that the fact that a lot of them are doing carbonic maceration or semi-carbonic maceration, which really enhances those fruity flavors, um, you know, Beaujolais tends to be on that fruity side of the spectrum. And then the floral note. I don't think people talk enough about how floral Beaujolais is. Uh, it, it doesn't tend to be one of the tasting notes that comes up, but for me, I really think that Beaujolais smells uh, either like violets or lilac in certain cases. Uh, in this case, I would, I would definitely go more on the violet end of the spectrum, um, but it's just so much fun to drink these wines. Um, in recent years, they've started creeping up in alcohol, but this is a very centered 12.5% alcohol. This is lunch wine. This is wine that you should be having with a sandwich at lunch. Uh, it's honestly the wine that I've drank the most of over the course of the last couple months. I've probably drank almost a dozen bottles of this. It's so good. It's, it's hard for me to even explain to you how good this wine is for $30. It makes me happy. And I think that's what wine should do, is it should make you happy. And this makes me happy in a very sort of simple, uh, like, satiated kind of way. And it's just so good. Um, this year, we were only able to get one single cuvee from him, so one single wine, uh, which is the Cuvée du Printemps. So this is not grapes that he's growing himself, but grapes grown by his neighbors. Um, his neighbors conveniently have a, a similar farming philosophy to him, so he's able to get grapes from an amazing source uh, and make a wine that's a little bit less expensive because... Uh, you know, the when you add in the cost of farming something yourself, the way that he's doing it, and being a young guy, uh, you know, obviously the wines end up being a little bit more expensive. So this is kind of his way of uh, sneaking around that a little bit and making something a little more affordable, but still up to his quality standards. Um, Silver, when we first met him, uh, it was kind of out of the blue. Uh, it was a producer that I had never actually tried before, but while we were in, in Burgundy, um, I had them on my radar and I was like, hey, I would really like to go visit these guys. Mark agreed. 
Uh, and so we drove down from Bone um, to uh, Blasse, which is where he's located. It's a little town south of what we call the Crew. Um, so the, the sort of like famous villages that are all in, in this, I don't know, in this one little region, quite mountainous. And a little bit further south than that is Blasse, which is sort of underrated. Um, and so we drove down there to go visit him. We walk into the winery and it's like this amazing punk rock commune kind of vibe. Uh, they're listening to the distillers like blasting over the uh, a little tiny sort of like tinny radio or something like that. Uh, everybody's you know, smoking cigarettes and, and drinking wine. And it's like, you know, one in the afternoon, something like that. Uh, there's an entire, uh, like a Birko ham, just chilling there for people to take slices off of, um, <laughs> you know, a whole block of Comte, you know, they're, they're really doing it right in this case. And I'm, you know, hugely, uh, hugely happy to get to participate in it. Um, so we went, uh, you know, he's rocking like denim overalls that you'll see in a lot of the, his pictures online. Uh, and it's just really like punk rock vibes. So it's cool to see somebody who is, um, you know, sort of uh, fits in with, you know, at least my personal aesthetic. Uh, you know, Mark likes to, to claim that he's still a jock in some ways. Um, but it definitely fits in with uh, sort of my ideology that you can be you know, a little, uh, you know, celebrate the punk rock parts of life and the punk rock aesthetic, but still make things that are really beautiful and ethereal and, uh, and do it in a really beautiful way. So, um, yeah, I, I get really excited about the, having the opportunity to work with them and, and see how he evolves over the next couple of years. His production is so, so, so small and he bottles a huge amount of it in magnums and then keeps it for himself. So what's actually released from the winery in any given year is, is quite minimal. Uh, so again, we, we feel very lucky that we even got this one wine this year. Um, originally when we brought it in, it was going to be exclusive to, uh, Vine Arts. Um, the, wine club purveyor in uh in calgary uh but jesse the uh the owner there was kind enough to spare just enough cases for everybody to get some for wine club uh so you can thank him if you're in edmonton and in lethbridge we weren't sure if we'd be able to get this wine into wine club but he was willing to uh to part with a couple of his uh his cases so um, again, one of our absolute favorites that we've ever brought in. I think the packaging's beautiful. I think the wine on the inside is just so uh, fun and friendly. It pairs with pretty much everything. Again, we'll include a couple uh, pairing suggestions in the actual write-up on our website. Uh, but again, I'm sure you'll be absolutely stoked with this bottle. Uh, well, that's pretty much everything we have to say for this month. Hopefully, over the course of the next couple months, we'll be able to get some more guests on again. It's been a little while since we've had a guest. Everybody's just so busy uh, over the summer. People are away. We've been back and forth between Calgary, Edmonton, and Lethbridge. We also stopped over in Toronto for a brief trip. Uh, and then we're going to the Okanagan next month to do two weeks of harvest. So uh, our opportunities to get a guest into the studio have not been uh, been perfect, but hopefully we'll be able to do that again soon. Uh, if you have any questions, you can send me an email. My email address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Um, or you can send us a message on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate it. It obviously takes a bunch of time to record these things every month. And the fact that you take time out of your day to listen to them really means the world to us. So uh, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again next month. Cheers.